Friends, grace and peace are yours through the gospel, the message that proclaims the mercy of God. Amen. Our recent Sunday morning Bible readings have been moving at breakneck speed. Christmas was less than a month ago. We were just celebrating baby Jesus' birth. But in this morning's gospel reading from Matthew 4, Jesus is already a man, 30 or 31 years old. We've flown through his early life. At this point in the church year, though, during the Epiphany season, that pace slows down. Starting next week, we'll spend three, day, three Sundays reading just one of Jesus' sermons. So as the pace slows down, today is a good opportunity to cover some of that history we missed. Uh, your service folder this morning has notes to do just that. There's a map of Israel there with some major locations in Jesus' life noted. You see Bethlehem down south. Jesus was born there, as the Christmas song reminds us, right? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. But he didn't grow up there. Uh, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, there in the northern region, and that region is called Galilee. It's not really far between those two towns. Valley Stream and Montauk are farther apart. But that was a much longer trip when you had to travel on foot. Until Jesus was 30 years old, he lived quietly there in Nazareth. But around age 30, he was baptized by his cousin John, and we heard about that event last week. God used Jesus' baptism to proclaim that Jesus was the Savior he had promised. Jesus came up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit landed on him in the form of a dove. Then God opened up the sky and spoke for everyone to hear, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What happened next? We might expect that Jesus was praised and greeted by everyone he met. Right? They had been waiting for this Messiah, this promised Savior, for a long time. But Jesus' first public appearance as the Messiah did not go well. Jesus was invited to preach and worship in Nazareth, his hometown. See, he had become known as a rabbi, a Bible teacher. And the people of Nazareth wanted to let the hometown boy show his stuff. But they weren't pleased with what they heard from him. Jesus didn't bring them the message that they expected to hear. Maybe they were looking for a message about the future. Uh, a message promising that God would soon overthrow the Romans who ruled over them. Or they might have been hoping for a safe, moralistic message. Here's what God wants from you. Do this and he'll be happy. Instead, Jesus stood up there and talked about himself. He told them that he was the fulfillment of God's Messiah promise. He told them that he knew what they expected the Messiah to do. This was his hometown, his home church. He knew what they expected. And he told them plainly, you're wrong. How's that for a nice message from the hometown boy? Well, Luke chapter 4 tells us all the people were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town in order to throw him off the cliff, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And this is how Jesus ends up leaving Nazareth to begin his ministry in Capernaum. That's on your map there, further northeast, at the top of the Sea of Galilee. Isaiah described Galilee, this place where Jesus began his ministry 700 years before Jesus walked and preached there. Our Old Testament reading that tells us that Galilee, where at Isaiah's time the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali lived, was a region that was often humbled. When enemies came against Israel from the northeast, as they often did, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali were the first to be attacked. Now, sometimes these enemies were mighty empires, the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Mostly those Zebulun and Naphtali were harassed not by great armies on organized marches. Usually their territory was the target for raiding by the peoples around them. 
the Canaanites of Hazor, the Aramaeans of Damascus and Zobah. Some names that aren't really familiar to us, but names that the Israelites of Galilee knew well, knew bitterly. Every day they knew that another raiding party from these neighbors might appear over the hills if it wasn't uh, a full-blown military assault. What effect psychologically does it have on a human to live under the constant threat of attack like that? Sadly, there are many people today who can answer that question firsthand. Over the last two decades, two million Americans served in the War on Terror. Dr. Stephen Saunders, a Christian psychologist who has counseled War on Terror veterans, notes that the wars we have fought for the last 70 years have featured this kind of constant potential for violence. In these wars, he writes in his book, A Christian Guide to Mental Illness, violence and death have not been constrained to battle. One may be attacked anywhere at any time. Many individuals exposed to these constant potential dangers develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Perhaps one in six of our recent veterans experience symptoms consistent with PTSD. What do those symptoms look like? There are four basic categories. Persistently re-experiencing the traumatic event, avoidance behavior, negative thought patterns and moods, and an overactive sort of hypervigilance. Saunders writes about a veteran named Brett who experienced symptoms in three of those categories. So after returning from deployment, Brett couldn't sleep in his bed. He was hypervigilant and triggered by the sounds of vehicles near their house. Every time brakes screeched, he jolted awake because his hypervigilance led him to re-experience an attack on his patrol. Before he could make sense of his surroundings, he would grab his wife and try to drag her to safety under their bed. Ultimately, he was forced into avoidance behavior. He'd only sleep in a tent in the quiet woods near their home. Brett's exposure to constant potential attack affected him. The Israelites of Galilee were similarly affected. Who knew when a raiding party might appear over the hills? Who knew when a new army might march over the border? Constant threat created constant fear and distress. 700 years later, as Jesus walked around in Galilee, it wasn't terribly different. Because Galilee had been raided and attacked for centuries, it was less developed than the south, so Galileans were mocked for their backwardness by people in the more cultured, prosperous south. Galileans also lacked political power. In Luke chapter 13, we read that Pilate, the Roman governor, was able to murder with apparently no repercussions some Galileans worshiping in Jerusalem. How Isaiah described Galilee in his time was still apt in Jesus' day from Isaiah 8. Distressed and hungry, they roam through the land. They become enraged and curse their king and their god. They see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. The people of Galilee culturally and individually, did not know where to find comfort and answers for their lives or for eternity. Do we? Do we, culturally and individually, know where to go for comfort and answers about our lives and our eternities? You're here in church. That's good. Here we gather around God's word to consider life and eternity, but Jesus' neighbors in Nazareth also gathered to hear a message about their lives and their eternity, his was not the message they wanted to hear. What kind of message do we, as individuals and as Long Islanders, want in church? Do we want a message that sinks down with us when we feel anger and bitterness and disappointment? 
a message that curses our kings and our God, a whispering, muttering message that confirms for us what we think we see where we live, distress and darkness and fearful gloom everywhere. Tell me that you don't feel that way sometimes about this place where we live. It's expensive, dauntingly so. It's packed to the gills with people. It's changing, and that can scare us. And we can always find a reason to gripe about the kings who rule over us, our political leaders. I, I hear people express anguish over how blue New York is. I hear people express anguish over how red Suffolk County is. What does it do to us to constantly perceive threat and difficulty hanging over us? Well, we can see what it did to the people of Galilee. Isaiah says that in his time, rather than consulting God's word, the Galileans listened to mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter. Some were frauds, others practiced magic. All of them, though, were shameless sophists who peddled for profit messages that did nothing for their hearers. Whispering and muttering. But when we are hard-pressed, distressed, worn down, those are the kinds of messages our ears itch to hear. Maybe you don't visit palm readers, but if you look for guidance and answer and comfort daily from TikTok or Instagram, you're scratching that itch in the same way the Galileans did as they visited shamans and psychics. Shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Isaiah asks, Ah, but it's hard to listen to God when I've got itchy ears that need scratching. We have reasons for our itching ears. We know that we can't control our life. We could lose our jobs suddenly. We could become ill. But it's not these threats themselves that cause our distress. The enemy that distresses us is within. It's the sinful heart with which you were born. The sinful heart that prefers an easy message from God. A simple moralism or a self-pitying Jeremiah against your enemies rather than his message of your need for repentance in the face of God's advancing kingdom. Your sinful heart looks at this life, it looks at the world in which you live, and it sees only darkness and distress and gloom. And it reacts with anger and self-pity and whispering, muttering malcontent. That doesn't come from faith. Faith reacts very differently when it sees the same things in life. It's not that there is no darkness or gloom in our world, but the believer reacts so differently to those things. Paul's words in our second reading show us what a faith reaction looks like. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We cannot naturally think that way. We do not, by nature, trust God. By nature, we assume that if this world is indeed full of darkness and gloom, just as it was for the Galileans, then I just got to look out for number one. And I want to hear a message that confirms that to me. Every one of us, every person thinks this way by nature, and by ourselves, we cannot get out of that whispering, muttering darkness. We cannot force ourselves to trust God. So how do we come to believe in God? How is faith and its attitude toward life brought to light in our hearts? Look back just a couple of lines in the second reading. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Faith is created in us by the power of the creator God, Paul says, the God who spoke 
and made this universe exist lights up our hearts which see only darkness and gloom through the good news about Jesus. Jesus came into this dark world to heal and enlighten and forgive. His message was appropriate for all. Repent. The kingdom is near. What is it to repent? It is to turn away from the sinful heart's idea that I have to look out for number one, that I can be self-sufficient, and to recognize that I am a clay jar, breakable, and with nothing in itself that makes it valuable. But repentance then sees that God fills me up with treasure, blessings, every day. My daily bread, my gainful employment, my family, all treasure which God pours into an unworthy clay jar. Above all, and it's this treasure which Paul in particular means here, faith. Trust in God is a treasure, a gift given in mercy by God himself. What are the constant threats and fears which test you? Right, we might, may not fear raiding Arameans or brutal Roman governors like the Galileans did, but we are tempted to fear government policies or conflict at home, the threat of illness, the cost of living, the uncertain future into which our children are headed. These things are real. They press us on every side, yet none of these are as dangerous to you as the sinful heart, which on this side of eternity clings to you and tries to convince you that the answer to your troubles is found somewhere other than in the promises of God and faith in Christ. Repentance, Martin Luther said in the first of the 95 Theses, is a daily thing. So daily, we tell our sinful heart that we know it lies. Daily, we tell our sinful heart that the troubles of this world cannot make untrue God's promises to care for us. Daily, we strike down our sinful heart with the call of Christ, come follow me. We take up our crosses and we follow him. Hear these words of Paul later in 2 Corinthians 4. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen.